Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. We're back in the Gospel of Mark tonight and reading the very last chapter, the very last verses of Mark's account of Jesus, everything he did and said and suffered. The ending of Mark's Gospel is, uh, well, it's abrupt, unexpectedly abrupt. And to some, over the centuries of its transmission, it has seemed unbearably disappointing. And so some scribes, as they copied and sent on these stories, added extended endings to mitigate the shock of how Mark closes his account. But for tonight, we're going to stick with Mark's original impulse as far as we know it. We're going to be reading to the very end of the story that does not quite match our hope for and they lived happily ever after. You'll see what I mean. Mark 16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They had been saying to one another, who roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb. When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place they laid him. Now go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you'll see him just as he told you. So they went out and fled from the tomb for terror and amazement had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. The first time it happened, I told everybody. I couldn't help myself. I told my parents first, of course, and I told my church, the whole church. And the late 90s equivalent of social media was when I told the clerk at the sit-go station down the road from the church I was serving, where lots of mornings I stopped in for a giant diet Pepsi in a styrofoam cup. It was always the same clerk on the same shift on those weekday mornings, and he was always so patient while I counted out exact change, 72 cents, a little more if I also got gum. And he seemed genuinely happy for me when I told him, and For the next several weeks, he asked me every time I came in how I was feeling, how it was going. And I'd say, fine, good, I'm tired, but 
no nausea. I'm going back to the doctor soon for a checkup. Then I stopped going to the sit-go for a while, for a few months, actually. And when I came back after all that time, pushing open the glass door to the sound of those little jingle bells, there he was, smiling. Hey, you're back. How's it going? How are you feeling? And I had to say the only thing I had found to say that would make the question stop. I'm not pregnant anymore. The second time it happened, I didn't tell the sit-go clerk. And I didn't tell the whole church, just the church leaders. And I told my parents, but I asked them not to tell every living relative under the sun. That way there were fewer people to untell 15 weeks or so later. The third time it happened, I barely let myself think about it. The biological benchmarks were measured appropriately. I cut back on Diet Pepsi and took my progesterone supplements and took good care, the best I knew how, that much I could do. But what I could not do for several months into that third pregnancy was hope. The crash of disappointment was something I could avoid. I knew if I just didn't swing so high this time, I would mitigate the risk, protect my own broken heart by resisting the pull toward anticipatory joy. I said nothing to anyone, for I was afraid. Yesterday, my son, he's pregnancy number four, after his sister, number three, came to the big red barn with me to disassemble the Good Friday stage setup and help me put together this rather minimalist Easter vibe for tonight. You haven't seen our boy lately, but I'm telling you, he's tall, very tall, and the time seemed right for me to ask a favor that only a tall person could do. See, there's been a giant cobweb strung across the upper left corner of the screen in the big red barn, lit up brightly by the projector that throws up lyrics on Sunday nights for exactly one singer other than Steph. That's me. The shimmery silk of the web has been growing more and more visible week by week, month by month, collecting dust and bugs and who knows what else. Honestly, it stopped shimmering an age ago. And for all this time, we've just been ignoring it, really, because, I mean, who's going to see? We figured, why take the time? Why expend the energy when, for all we know, it could be some months more before this space is anything more than a studio, before it is once again a church made sacred by the saints who gather in it. But yesterday, well, yesterday, it seemed urgent. It somehow seemed necessary to banish from the screen this one sign of our long season of enforced solitude. I, 
found a soft, brushy thing that screws on to the end of a long pole, and I asked Jack if he would reach up high and just swipe at it, you know, just sweep it away, as he's the only person who's been here in a long time who could do it without getting a ladder down. Listen, I know, I know that some of you are out there saying to your screen, why didn't you just call me? I'd have gotten the ladder down weeks ago, months ago. I'd have climbed up as high as I needed to to clean up the screen, just to disappear that tangible reminder of all that has been taken from us, the year of our life together that has been lost. You didn't have to spend all these months with that sticky sadness just hanging over your head. Unto you, I say, I know you would have, friends. But I said nothing to anyone, for I was afraid. Because, listen, here is the truth. The universe does not reward hope. The universe, like the coronavirus, is morally neutral, truly indifferent concerning what the universe's sentient creatures might want. You can wish upon the first star you see every night of the world, and sometimes you will get what you wish for, and sometimes you won't. But if you do, it won't be because the universe honored your hope for whatever you imagine would be for your flourishing. And if you don't, it won't be because the universe is doling out some karmic gotcha back. The universe doesn't work that way. Indeed, there is some wisdom learned by many of us by way of hard experience in tempering one's hope, just tamping down the expectations, keeping a lid on the anticipation of anything very good. Pessimists are never disappointed, they say. Pessimists are realists, I say. Just across the southern U.S. border, there are countless Central American neighbors asking, waiting, wishing for entrance to this country, willing to risk their own safety for the hope of something better over here, for the hope of working for wages, for the hope of raising their kids in safe neighborhoods, for the hope of health and happiness, hoping indeed for a reason to hope as their circumstances of their birth give little cause to hope that things will ever get better if they just stay where they are. Hearing their voices brings my heart into my throat. How can they risk such hope? Don't they know how dangerous it is to open your heart to possibilities like that? Don't they know how likely it is that they'll be disappointed beyond what they can bear? Subtext. Don't they know who we are collectively, their neighbors to the north? Don't they know how morally indifferent we have historically been to their hope for a life of health and happiness and safety for their kids? The way Mark tells it, the women who went to the tomb that Sunday morning were on a mission. The corpse of their beloved friend and rabbi had not been put away properly. Enforced Sabbath practice had denied them the chance to contemplate their loss through the rituals of caring for his body. 
not only because the Sabbath is a day of rest, but because it calls for a cessation of commerce, no exchange of money for goods or services on the Sabbath, as money represents work and commerce makes other people work, and you cannot build your Sabbath rest on the backs of non-resting people, says the Lord. So the market would literally have shut down for the 24 hours following his death, Friday night through Saturday evening, meaning they could not buy the spices and ointments they needed until after sundown on Saturday. And after shopping on Saturday night, well, it was too late. They were going to need daylight to brighten the shadowy cave where he lay. So Sunday morning, the dawn of that third day, Mary, the one from Magdala by the Sea of Galilee, Mary, also known as James's mom, and Salome, whose mother had the good sense not to name her Mary, these three, they hustled to the tomb, which is open, weird, which is empty, weirder, but not actually empty because there's someone in there, not Jesus, dead, but another dude, quite alive, weirdest. And it's alarming. Mark says they are alarmed in verse 5. Alarmed being the lowest level fear word in this story, meaning they are not yet afraid, they are not yet trembling in terror, they're just weirded out. But then the guy in Jesus' tomb, who is not Jesus and is not dead, starts talking, and alarm escalates quickly. Not because he's talking, but because of what he says. Because what he says, essentially, is that that resurrection thing that Jesus had thought might happen has indeed happened. And he is hiking to Galilee right now. So they should hurry up and get going themselves and his other friends because he has a head start. And you don't want to keep him waiting, do you? That's when alarm turns to terror and amazement. At least that's the way our translation says it in verse 8. They went out and fled the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them. You see, terror here is actually trembling, shaking, quaking. It's the physical overload of adrenaline and cortisol, the body's response to a threat of harm. And amazement here, well, it's a metaphorical word. It means something like to be outside of oneself with shock, to be cast beside oneself with distress, not too far from our own understanding of dissociating in periods of intense stress or suffering. So we read terror and amazement had seized them how does it change if the women fleeing the tomb are trembling dissociating lost in fear so that at least for a little while they can't even talk about it they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid it's not the empty-ish tomb or the very much alive stranger hanging out in it that does it that weirdness is alarming nothing more but when that young man says the one they're looking for Jesus, yes, yes, their Jesus, yes, yes, the one from Nazareth, yes, the one whose breath bled out over agonizing hours last Friday, the one whose presence they had hoped would change everything for them forever, the one whose absence 
was a crushing defeat of every good possibility for their and the whole world's future, when that young man says that Jesus is on his way right now to his home territory in Galilee, well, our girls leave alarming in the dust, racing headlong into aphasic phobia. Yes, phobia. We get that from the Greek word Mark chooses to close out his gospel, for they were afraid, phobeo, phobia, phobic. And I get it. I get it, don't you? To be invited to imagine that everything you ever wanted, every wish on every star is about to come true. It's so potentially disastrous, so probably heartbreaking. You let yourself fly so high before and look where it got you, neck deep in grief with work yet to do. Can you really afford to risk that again? You know that you cannot. You know you don't have the energy to endure that emotional labor all over again. See, here's the thing about hope, which I suspect you know deep down. Hope requires the hoper, the hopeful one, to invest their emotional, spiritual, material well-being, their whole self, in other words, in something over which they have no control. Hope requires a giant leap of faith, not faith in one's own ability to get things done or figure things out or earn the universe's rewards. That, that we could do or at least try. No. No. If it's really hope, we're talking about, well, then it pays no attention to what we can make happen. It's all about that which we cannot do for ourselves. Hope that this pregnancy will stick. Hope that we will regather soon in safety. Hope that your neighbors want a good life for your family as much as you do. Hope that your family of origin will love you for who you are, not for who they imagined you to be. Hope that the doctors will figure it out and the treatment will work. Hope that this church won't let you down. Hope that there is a light at the end of this long tunnel where trespasses have trapped you, the stuff you've done, the stuff that's been done to you. You hope these don't get the last word about you. Hope that the young man in that tomb speaks the truth, that the living, breathing savior of the world is right this minute planting his footsteps on the earth's surface because like always, he's got things to do, places to go, people to see, and death cannot keep its prey. Hope that you will remember how to hope when it's been so long since you dared let yourself do it. The kind of hope we're talking about, the terrifying kind, 
that provokes your sprinting and leaves you speechless, that kind of hope is dangerous. It's propped up on a rickety platform of faith in the one to whom everything belongs and towards whom everything is bending, the one who has swallowed up death forever as an aperitif before the banquet to which we are all of us invited, our tears wiped away, our disgrace taken from us. And if that makes you afraid, if that level of hoping when you are so well acquainted with disappointment that you have made your peace with it leaves you gasping. Well, join the Mary Mary Salome Club. Those terrified women did eventually tell what they knew. We're reading about it, aren't we? But Mark is generous. Bless him to let us know that it took a minute. It took a minute. What if we could help each other? The way I imagine those women helped each other in the interim. What if one of the reasons for church is that we're supposed to help each other hope? help each other get loose from the icy grip of fear with a kind of exposure therapy, repeated exposures to that possibility that God does indeed get everything God wants? What if we could spot each other for those death-defying leaps of faith, be each other's safety net, making sure that no one falls too hard or too far, making sure that everybody feels safe enough to try it again and again and again. What if the young man in that not-so-empty tomb said, don't be alarmed, but do get excited, I dare you. I double, triple dog dare you because after everything y'all threw at him, he could hardly wait to get back here to love y'all some more. And what if the women who at first were scared speechless, too scared to hope it was true, eventually found their voices and shouted it from the rooftops, Christ is risen! He is risen indeed! And what if by telling their story, those same women are daring us now, double, triple dog, to push through the terror that we have learned to live with and rediscover our capacity for hope. If he's risen, if he's out there, then that is the dare. Take it. Take it, church. Happy, terrifying Easter. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. 
To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.